In 2016, Alex Gray received a phone call from his team manager at Volcom. Yeah, I mean, I honestly really haven't talked about it yet, but two years later it was um, a 15-minute phone call and just that I wasn't being re-signed. Did you see it coming? No. I think with them, I saw my relationship going a few more years, but trickling down per year. Sure. Um, fair enough. But I was just so gung-ho on making it to 20 years with them. You know, I was at 18, and I'm like, like me. I just felt like that 20-year thing was going to be such a cool accomplishment. That's where I wanted to get to personally. And then after that, I'm like, okay, it makes sense. You know, let's, let's you guys, we can start doing whatever. So it kind of came out of nowhere, but... The reason why I was left ambiguous and, you know, they're a part of a parent company um, and, you know, have have a marketing budget to, to face within and they were making changes and they brought on a, a very big athlete for them in their surf world, um, but just made cuts across their, their board sports from yeah. surfing, skating, snowboarding. Um, and when I heard the other names that were let go, I'm like, oh God. Those aren't just Joe Blow. Like, there's some serious athletes being, being, being cut out there. Um, but really, for me, it's like these moments happen, and you see a lot of guys become like really bitter. They really—I don't know if they self-consciously do it, but they, their careers begin to stop. I knew that the ultimate decision that I had to make within this is: look, it's inevitable. It happened before I wanted it to, but think about the 18 years that I had, and you know only gratitude and and thanks you know i think of all this stuff all these magazine covers all videos all these things happen because of them so you have to keep that feeling of gratitude and and allow it to be and allow it to let go personally it was hard i i felt like a bit of an identity crisis you know my life had been in that way and, and my loyalty and passion to one brand for my entire since i was 12 years old yep so i'm like whoa I didn't even feel cool wanting to call other brands because I was still going, this is nuts. Like, I don't want to, I still didn't want to promote anyone else. (laughs) His relationship with Volcom as a sponsored athlete started 18 years prior. It was a good relationship, seemingly beneficial for both parties. As a youth, Alex had a very strong competitive career. He's from the South Bay of Los Angeles, which is a hugely important region to the surf world, not only as a market for selling surf wear, but as a historical epicenter of board building since the 60s. As Alex's cachet as a pro surfer grew, so did Volcom as a brand. Focused on skate, surf, and snow, Volcom was founded in Newport Beach in 1991 and celebrated youthful creativity and board sports progression, rallied by the slogan, Youth Against the Establishment. An illness sidelined Alex Gray from his competitive focus on the World Qualifying Series. He lost all his accumulated points. Disheartened by competitive bureaucracy, Alex found solace in free surfing. He dedicated the next phase of his career to finding big barrels and cold water exploration. Volcom, for their part, understood the market value of a professional free surfer, and they supported his path, and they grew all along the way. In 2005, they IPO'd on NASDAQ and sold 
4.69 million shares at $19 a share, raising a total of $89 million. In 2008, they acquired electric sunglasses. The brand continued to thrive. Then, on May 2nd, 2011, with the goal of expansion and diversifying, Volcom was acquired by the French-based luxury conglomerate, the Caring Group, for a reported $608 million. One thing that I didn't mention and that it was sure. so cool is that Richard Wolcott, the founder of, of Volcom, he gave me a phone call and we talked for about two hours. And that was what really gave me peace in the whole thing. Good. Um, that the, the initial just cut phone call was like, whoa, that was nuts. And then I got the phone call from him and, and just a lot of explaining the business aspect of it. Right which as athletes, we need to know how those businesses are run and internally what's going on, because it's important. It kind of helps me understand how I can do my job better. But, uh, you know, he, he shortly resigned after that. And um, I just realized, wow, man, I got to live the Volcom era. And that will forever be one of the most powerful eras in surfing. How long have I been gone? How long have I been traveling? Volcom's brand continued to thrive and meet projected goals of growth and brand expansion, wisely divested beyond just surfing. The global recession hit surfing a little later than most industries, and as digital media found its footing, print media began to constrict. In 2013, Transworld Surf ceased publication. For a professional free surfer like Alex, much of his contractual obligation relied on getting exposure through media outlets like magazines. Cover shots net you a certain bonus, two-page spreads a certain number, one page a different number. Each image comes with a financial photo incentive. Fewer surf magazines means fewer opportunities to honor your sponsor's obligations. In January 2017, Surfing Magazine shuttered. Then Stab Magazine stopped printing issues this year, now fully devoted to digital. What youth's founding team all abandoned ship just recently? Well, I think now it's it's harder. So before, especially before that 2007 crash and before the switch from print to digital and let's talk about retail to online retail, there's three major things that have happened in the last 10 years for our industry. Um, for the athletes, it's just more work now. Because you have this personal platform, you're expected to do a lot. You know, before it was show up for this autograph signing, do these contests, you know, and we'll take you on this catalog shoot to paradise. Like, what? Right. This is epic. Our our obligations were just they were fun. I never looked at any of my ob- my contractual obligations as like, well, oh, this sucks today. I got to go meet some fans and sign some posters. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a job. And now it's like, no, we want deliverables from you. We need, you know, that one minute edit once per week. Like you have to be out there in a sense working and producing content and what I would consider weekly. You know, where it the the game and the career is all there. It's just it's more of a hustle. But you're seeing people do it and you're like, how is that guy still going? And why is that guy not going? And it's just because people are starting to figure out the change. Yeah. Because again, it is business and it's marketing. But now it's like, who am I? And, 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 and why am I important to these people? 
Right. And, you know, that the equitable part comes down to how many people are you reaching? Before, there wasn't a number able to be put on who you're reaching with the video part you had. Yeah. There's a bit of a number you could put on the amount of surf magazines made, sure. With any business, retail business, digital business, an individual athlete's business, or an international conglomerate, adaptability is an absolute necessity. And thankfully, Alex has been keen to recognize that. So, so I've just had to tone back my formula and use what I have, especially big thanks to like, I have Body Glove Spy, Channel Islands I've been with for 16 years, on a mission's almost 20, like, it's funny, it's like, yeah, my life has changed, but like that session with Kelly, I'm all, God, dude, life is so good. You know, I can, I'm one of those guys that worries about worrying and bite my fingernails, I get anxiety and I'm constantly trying to, what's next? And you kind of got to sit back and go, dude, what's now? Like, life is good, man. Sure. You're going to be okay, and you're happy. Like, know that this is what makes you happy. And so now I'm at a point of like, okay, what makes me happy? As a personal side, not like, how am I pleasing others? Which is a big thing that I've dealt with for a long time. But I'm just going like, okay, what makes you happy? Now, how do you do that? And... And that's, that's, that's where I'm at. And that's where a lot of my self-satisfaction is now coming and like giving myself away for other people and trying to talk more and be relatable and like, be like, look, this is where I blew it. This is what worked. How can I help you? Because I know what, I know what it feels like yeah. to, I think with anybody that the moment that reality strikes, let's say with a sponsor loss or whatever, you're like, whoa, that feeling in your gut everybody's had it people have been laid off of jobs people have had life hit you name it now i'm like oh cool dude i know what that feels like with all the tolls we pay we're on the highway someday with all the tolls we pay the highway someday so today's question how do you make a living as a professional surfer today is the best surfing in the world happening on the wsl and if so does that negate the value of professional free surfers where can brands find the greatest roi for their marketing dollars how can they connect with their audiences I would argue podcast advertising is a great way. And it's all told through the lens of the recent swell of a lifetime that hit Cloudbreak. Alex was there, and this was the perfect microcosm case study for the state of the industry. What pro surfers were there? Who were the photographers and filmers? Were they hired to shoot individual people? Or were they there on spec hoping to sell their images after the fact? If so, where can they even sell those images nowadays? What about the rescue teams? Who finances that? Well, Alex answers all of these questions. We will get to that. But first, this show is made possible by listener support via a PayPal donation button on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And as a thank you for your continued support, we're actually going to give away a surfboard this month. We're giving away an Alaya. So everyone who donates in the month of June will be entered to win. If you're already set for a recurring monthly donation, you're already entered. 
The winner will be picked at random on July 1st. The board in Alaya will be custom made for you by Morningwood Surfboards on Oahu. The winner will be responsible for shipping, but completely free otherwise. Last week, Leon at Morningwood Surfboards explained some of the sizing and also design characteristics of an Alaya. Basically a thin, round-nosed, squared-tailed plank of wood. Traditionally, Hawaiians have used koa wood, but Leon's now using polonia wood for its strength-to-weight ratio and also, very importantly for an Alaya, for its flex pattern. So the first one I built out of eucalyptus which was way too heavy and then had this other wood that we because we, we I didn't have any tools really so it was kind of find a piece of wood and make a board um, and then once I rode one that was polonia I was like wow this is a lot more flotatious it's, in Hawaii it's really hard to get the wood we had a supplier here that had a big old stack that we kind of burned through and that was imported from somewhere in Asia and had really crappy glue lines and we had to cut out the glue lines and put it back together but now we're getting um, actually just like four inch strips and laminating them together with marine epoxy. What's the ideal um, flex pattern? What are you looking for? Uh, it, it just, it's almost like a, it's kind of hard to explain, but once I found it, I was like, that's what I was searching for every time. So it's figuring out the, you know, the weight of the person that's going to be riding it, how they surf, and then making it just right. And too much and it starts to twist not enough and it's stiff you take it out to the water and if i put it under my feet and i'm standing there underwater and i push on it i can feel there's a certain like frequency that i've that i can feel that's the right frequency once i had that magic board that had that flex i kind of know what that frequency feels like for me and then kind of adjust accordingly depending on you know the size of the rider but when you do have the right flex pattern it will act as kind of like a catapult so you can when you're pumping down the line it will actually push you forward and you feel the spring and you're already flying i mean it's the fastest board around but it, once you do that it just has a whole different feel i'll be posting footage throughout the month of people riding elias machado rostovich all on instagram at surf splendor and also images of elias made by leon at morningwood surfboards Thank you, Leon, for supporting this show by donating this custom-built Alaya for a listener. Thank you, listeners, for supporting via surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. We'll pick one winner at random on July 1st, and I'll post a video of the selection of that person on Instagram at that time as well. So look forward to that. All right, back to Alex Gray. Not only do we discuss the aforementioned state of professional surfing, but Alex also opens up about losing his brother Chris to drug addiction when they were teenagers and what he's doing now to honor Chris. He shares private conversations that he recently had with Kelly Slater about current values and how to find fulfillment. And it's all predicated on that one fateful day, May 27th, in the historic swell that collided with the tiny island of Tavarua. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with professional surfer Alex Gray. And the seagull falls back on the sea. Was that the craziest day you've ever seen at Cloudbreak? Um. Well, I've been lucky to be there for like the last three big ones over the last 10 years, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. The Volcom Swell, 
and the one before that I call the Bruce Swell where he rode that wave on the big orange board. Um, it was different. They're all different, and it makes you realize how unique Cloudbreak is to big open ocean swells. Mm. You know, you can forecast and say, this is it. It's going to be bigger than this or that, but it was unique in that it came with pouring rain that started at 3 a.m., and whenever it rains in that area, it's usually associated with very strong winds. And so when I started hearing the rain on the tin roof, I was like, oh God, that's not a good sign. And the forecast was to be light and almost glassy in the afternoon. And when we woke up, it was howling, you know, 20 knot trade winds, which is a wind that comes with the wave. And it almost makes it crumble. So those waves that you saw, they were so hollow and below sea level, didn't matter what the wind was. Yeah. But for the waves that people were hoping to paddle, it made it super tricky. And uh, it wasn't ideal in that sense. And I thought it was actually really cool that guys brought tow boards. Like I saw the day before people busting out their tow boards. And I'm like, interesting. You don't see that this day and age because everybody's so paddle savvy. And it was really, I think, those guys that utilized what that swell was more than the paddle surfers. Mm. Because that, that forecast didn't come with the winds that it said it was. It came with the possible storm. Which, right. which hit with it. And I don't think that any of the videos or photos shared how raw and scary and unruly that day was. The Volcom Swell was like groomed. It started off crappy and then the winds lightened up and you saw almost every wave that came in ridden by a paddle surfer. This swell was the complete opposite. Um, Dan Godowskis started it. Well, no, I take it back. Lucas Silva of Brazil paddled out by himself. And rode a wave and made it to the bottom and ate crap. Mm. And at this point, there were like 20 boats, but out of your peripheral, there were boats coming from all directions. And uh, people were sitting there very hesitant, other than guys strapping up their tow boards, seeing the waves up the reef go below sea level. And I was sitting in the boat with Reef McIntosh, and Dane Godowskis was on the boat across from us. And Reef goes, yeah, Dane, come on. And just like that, Dane suited up and jumped out. I'm like, well, that didn't take much. Him and Lucas were there for about 10 minutes. Dane paddled for a wave, missed it, and then was under the hook of one that rolled, and he got to roll into it, and it was the first paddle wave. And we only saw the beginning, and then it stretched out to the inside, but he didn't make it. And uh, the thing with cloud break is, is that it, you're actually less safe the further you get down the wave. A lot of times that wave will give you an entry up the top, but from then on, it just gets more and more you locked in, and there's nowhere to go. So it's one thing to not make the wave, and then the wave after it puts you right in the spot where the wave after it's grown twice the size and it's going to land on your head. And me and a group of people, um, Jojo Roper and Jared White, hired safety. We physically called and hired Ryan Hargraves and Abe Lerner and got jet skis. Does that mean you fly, them, that. you fly them out there and everything? So we fly them out there, and then now there's a there's a GoFundMe in hopes that people will help to pay for these guys' tickets because, you know, they're not there for free. Um, and so everybody, we're hoping, continues to chip in who got picked up and their lives saved possibly by these guys. Because that wave in particular, because... It holds you down for so long, it pushes you down the reef. It's probably one of the easiest waves to get a two-wave hold down. 
and it's just it's one of the sketchiest waves in the world mm -hmm. so like that safety is so important and now you see everybody has the inflatable vests on people are pulling their cords before they're even underwater it's like it's no joke anymore right and and uh it, it's just very interesting to see what goes in it i sat with the doctor on the island we went through all the aeds all the oxygen tanks to make sure they were full because the last time i was there i was on the boat with aaron gold who was revived back to life right halfway from the lineup back to the island by Greg Long, Healy, and uh, Ryan Hipwood. So it's like, there's all this stuff going on, there's all this hype, but when you've been there before and you've experienced what the big picture of this thing is, like, it's really gnarly. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think there was probably 70 guys that showed up for it. And how many different safety teams? Well, then Kyborg showed up. Billy Kemper and Nate Florence hired Kyborg. So we had three safety skis, and they were Which all in communication. Which is not nearly enough, right? Well, but it's pretty good to be three miles off an island in the middle of Fiji and have three of the best safety drivers in the world and have the jet skis there. Like, that was quite an accomplishment. But if there's 60 guys in the lineup... Well, here's the thing is that I think only about 40 guys even surfed. Okay. Um, so not, not everybody surfed when they saw the conditions when it wasn't perfect. Because, yeah, this thing was forecasted to be glassy and 60 foot. Right. I mean, so, that, that was, I, I don't know who slept that night. I didn't. <laughs> right. So my thought, though, is you're financing, you and a couple of other guys are financing your own safety team. But obviously, if somebody's drowning, your safety team is going to go rescue the stranger. Yeah. They're not going to let somebody drown. So you're essentially, you know, funding that for everybody else. But then that could also leave you hanging because if they're running safety for that guy and you're on the next set wave. Well, the way that we all, because we all sat down and had a meeting before and, you know, everybody kind of knew the team in place that had set this all up. Mm -hmm. But it was, of course, going to be a situation that if somebody was in serious trouble, that they were going to get picked up first. Sure. Because the other part of this is that we have this all in place, but we should all still be capable to be out there on our own. So the other response was that if you're okay and you don't need a ski pickup, well, then just do the tower run. Take the waves on the head, and if you're breathing and, and you're calm and everything's fine, you're not hurt, then then you're going for it. Like, we were really using the, the skis for, for the true scenarios. Good. And it's... It, it's a team effort, but it's the ocean, and it's just anything can happen. But the fact that the homework's being done and people are very into this safety aspect is, I think, the biggest advancement in this whole good big wave thing. Because you're seeing, you know, we saw Ramon's wave and certain guys' waves, where you're like, those are historic waves yeah, with serious consequences. Well, talking about the inside section being more dangerous and having no way out... The angle that I saw of Ramon's wave, when he kicks out, I was wondering if he'd even kick, be able to kick out right there. Like, if he would have gone much farther than that, it seems like there was no escape. Like, he got out right at the right moment, you know? Well, his his wave was perfect, and, you know, a lot of Cloudbreak's best waves, the reason why it's such an addicting wave and really one of the hardest is that you want the waves that look like closeouts. And, it you know, it's a wall that goes from where you're sitting all the way to the channel at the boats. And those will come back on themselves. But you just don't believe it until you pull into the barrel and go, oh, wait, I can match this thing. 
Um, at that size too, you're probably going faster than you ever anticipated well, at, going. At that size, it was crazy because the guys on the jet skis, they, you know, for size, because you don't know how big it is until someone gets out there. And so they went on the first set and the guy had it full throttle pinned. And we're watching him going, oh my God, like you get an idea of how fast that wave's moving. You know, that thing pinned is let's say 50 miles an hour. And that's what he was painting the ski just to keep up with the lip. And at that point, I was like, wow, you really need a tow board right now, hmm. you know. And there there were, I think, actually plenty of opportunities of waves to paddle. But it's just that whole scenario set up for what would be an incredible tow session. And uh, Ramon's wave in particular didn't have the crazy long wall on it. It was on the upper half of the reef where sometimes the wave will split in half but it had the bend on it that made it grow. So you see him pull in and then you see the end of the wave is, you know, a third bigger than when he first started. Yeah. And that's your quintessential cloud break barrel. Yeah. It's it's the one that you drop in and go, "Oh god." <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's the wave of your life feeling, but it's also like, "Oh crap. I, you know, didn't really realize it was going to go like this." And uh yeah, it's everybody that day just considers cloud break the best wave in the world because it holds that form and that long of a barrel at that size. Right. Did you see the GoPro footage of Dane Godowskis getting picked up after that wave? Yeah, so that was Ryan Hargraves. He put a GoPro on his chest, and he films. Um, and he said it was the first pickup he did that morning, so he was, like, over-heightened. Yeah. Because it was new for him, too. I don't know if he had been there before. So he was going into that area where it's just no man's land to pick Dane up. And... You know, that's one thing about cameras and stuff these days is that people do get to see what the emotion's like. Because yeah. it's one thing to ride the wave and see a photo, but to see that surfer and that safety guy, their, their emotions, it's gnarly. You watch them pick them up, it's very serious. You know, no one's laughing, no one's cheering yet because there's a wave in, in the corner of the camera about to take them out. So they get them on the sled up and over, and then you just hear Dane screaming. Yeah. And that feeling of like, I rode a wave. I'm okay. Oh my God, that was unbelievable. Like I'm, I was scared out of my mind. It's, I, I think that that's the addiction. I think mm -hmm. that's why people do this. Yeah. And, and it's fun that you can finally see what that's like. Yeah, you're right. It, the video did capture the emotion and the danger and certainly the elation after the fact of surviving it. Did you paddle out? I did. I actually sat and waited for five hours. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was pouring rain. It was the coldest I've ever been there. I, I thought my jacket was waterproof and I very quickly realized it wasn't. And uh, all the guys on my boat weren't going to tow. Um, you know, I kept looking at Billy Kemp. He was like, not towing. I'm only paddling today. I'm like, all right, right on. Our other Tavaroo boat, Sean Lopez, brought his tow board and a lot of the goofy footers were switching that out. And I'm watching these guys just get what looked like video game rides. Yeah. And uh, I just had my paddle stuff, so I was just sitting waiting because the forecast kept saying on the winds, it's going to lighten up. And then every two hours, these fronts would come through where it just white out the horizon. You couldn't see the mainland. We were just kind of in our little bubble. And I was like, this is not going to change. Like none of the storm ever led up to the point where we're like, oh, it's going to glass off. So I think everyone paddling was just sitting in the cold, wet rain going, when is this going to change for us? And so finally, around 1 p.m., it kind of lightened up a bit, and I'm like, I got to get one. And by that point, there was 20 guys paddling, and there were still a couple tow teams. Um, 
but the real toe show was like from 9 a.m. to 12. Like that's when almost every wave was ridden. And uh, it was one of the best toe sessions I've ever watched. Like mm. it was very entertaining and it was it was just rad. It was utilized. Like it was what it what needed to happen. But then the paddling started and uh, guys were going for it. You know, there wasn't that many waves made, but there were people that got in the barrel and eventually cloud break will stretch down the reef. And when it does, it like the bottom drops out halfway. And if you're not up on top of it, you're just going to run into the depths of the foam ball. And on a nine foot board, there's no, oh, I'm going to pull my shoulders up and get up and over this. Like you're just locked in. Um, and that's what happened on my wave. I actually got a roll into a wave that went and grew onto the inside and I just kept watching it bigger and bigger and the boats get started disappearing. I'm like, Oh God, I'm getting to the inside bowl. And I looked and it just looked like basically a white carpet of reef below me. Oh God, that's not good. You know? And, uh, right before that, there must've been a wave because I felt something and I realized in the photo after I hit the white water from the wave before and my board stopped and my front foot actually scooted two feet up on my board and I almost fell over the front of my board. And I'd never had that happen before, but I think when you're riding that big of a board, everything becomes like more sensitive. Mm. On the smaller boards, you can get away with maneuvering around stuff coming up and over. Those big boards with all that rail and it's like anything is going to grab. So I almost fell over my face before I really got into the meat and potatoes of the barrel. And then I got in, I'm like, yeah. And then that whole bottom dropped out. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> and I just jumped into it. Wow. And I just grabbed it. I'm all, <gasps> grabbed a breath right before I saw the lip, like basically land on my head. And uh, God, I haven't been held under that long in a long, long time. I got pushed so far down, but I had a short john with foam on and the short john came up over my face. Wow. So I couldn't get to my uh, pole suit, you know, with the float, because I had that on under. But because I had that short john up over my face, I couldn't get my arms inside the armpit holes to find the poles. So I realized, okay, I'm not, I don't have my pole. So I just started doing the double arm, you know, swan swim. And uh, it took me like eight, eight full on poles to finally get up to that bubbly part where you know you're getting to the surface and at that point i'm like oh god this is two-wave hold down land you know i've been down for a really long time i don't think i had a two-wave hold down i'm not sure but i came up and i mean like you saw dane's video i just started screaming i didn't even make the wave and i was just like so elated Mm. because with the build-up and all of that it's it's emotional and uh i was happy to ride one wave you know, looking back, I wish I had a tow board, to be honest. Like, that was the one thing I'm going, God, that would have been incredible to see what that was like. But um, what a what a utilized swell from guys paddling to guys towing to historic waves ridden. Um, so what'd you ride? I rode a 9-0, and I'm not used to riding that big of a board in a barrel. Who shaped it? Channel Islands. Hmm. And I got to work with them on it because I'm like 145 pounds. You know, a lot of these guys are big, gnarly 200-pound dudes, and they ride big, thick boards. I ride really small boards compared to everybody else. And uh, I've never liked that longer board feeling. Yeah. A lot of guys like that set it and forget it where you hold your line. And I've always been someone that likes to do little, like, minute kind of checks in the barrel, moving your front shoulder, getting your front foot going to get up and over and not drift into the lip. 
So being on that board was a whole new sensation and just right. knowing I had nowhere to go and praying that my speed was correct. I'm like, okay, I guess we just hold on at this yeah. point. There's no move in those boards, especially a little twig like me. I was, it was great. It was a radical sensation. Um, so did you get to ride that board at all throughout the trip or is that only the one wave that you rode the nine footer on? Well, it was great because my, uh, my quiver went from a 5.5 five rocket wide which is Channel Island's new small wave board to a 9.0 that was meant for that wave. Yeah. Um, but I was there five weeks prior to that swell and knew I was going to do a longer stint on the island. And I had my 5.5 to 7.2 packed in my board bag. And 10 minutes before the taxi showed up at my house, I'm like, screw it. Because I, I was having this nervous feeling going, I, I need my big paddle boards. Anything could happen. So I threw my pole vest in, my CO2, CO2 cartridges, and packed a second board bag. But it becomes a $350 uh, board fee then compared right. to a 150 Fiji Airways is gnarly on a second bag. But then I'm like, dude, you have these boards. You have a dream. Why would you leave that back in your garage and just let it keep sitting there? Right. Well, what's 200 more dollars? Yeah. And when that swell started showing up on the forecast, I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, thank God I have all this stuff. Because otherwise you're screwed then. You start trying to call people, hey, will you pick my boards up? And sometimes there's nice friends around, but that's asking a lot of people to start grabbing stuff out of your garage and lug another nine-foot board with them. Totally. So what were you doing in Fiji for five weeks, man? Living the dream or what? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I have just this crazy addiction and affection for Tavarua Island and especially Cloudbreak. Um, Richard Wolcott took me there as a teenager and I paddled out to Cloudbreak and just thought I was killing it. And we watched the footage that night and I'm grabbing rail like 50 feet in front of the barrel, like seriously in stance going, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a kook. And I had never ridden a wave so poorly or been kind of so, uh, reality checked yeah i just couldn't i I just couldn't figure that wave out oh okay and, and uh something clicked in my head i was just a young kid and it was kind of like hawaii was for me too I, I showed up there and i was just so scared i didn't know what to do i'm like i need to figure this out if if i want to further my my surfing prowess and career really so i've gone back every year now for 13 years um to to learn and and try to figure out backside tube riding and this and that, but I think what happened to me this year was I was given an opportunity to volunteer as a surf guide on the island, which allowed me to be there for five weeks. And uh, I packed a spear gun. I'd never shot a fish before, but lobster dive all winter long, and my friends are super good at it. But I'm like, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna use the island for like what it provides. Yeah. And not just surfing. Not just surfing. Yeah. And you realize you're on an island, so it's not gonna be that picturesque beautiful blue barrels every day you know you're on an island it could storms can blow through in 24 hours so i just got into a, a mode of every day i'm like okay you today are going to learn something new like you're going to do something new whatever it is um so i end up shooting my first fish and a few afternoons i would go and, and shoot fish right at dark and give them to the the village in town on the island there and I'm like, this is rad. That's a cool way to give back. And uh, we went fishing. And, you know, I just kind of got into it with the guests. I was just stoked. There, a lot of them brought little kids who had never surfed before. 
So it was a lot of pushing people into their first waves. Yeah. So what is your responsibility as a, you said, surf guide? Yeah, it's really to provide a a safe, fun environment for the guests that are visiting. Because for someone like me, I know how shallow it is. I know the consequences of certain waves. Um, So you really want to keep people's ability within their comfort level. And cloud break is the most known wave there, but swimming pools is nearby. It's a deeper, really fun, slow, almost good longboard right. There's Nemo to left. That's a, a slower version. Like the variety of waves there can fit everybody's ability, but they don't know unless you have somebody to tell them. So I kind of every every day you wake up and go, okay, what's this guy's formula? And you try and get them on a wave that they're going to come back going, that was the best session of my life. That made my trip. Yeah. Rather than the I got stuck inside at shish kebabs and took ten waves <laughs> on the head. And, Alex, you think that's fun, but. I literally thought that was the scariest thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's just it was fun for me to be there, kind of unselfish and looking out for others and and trying to at least show them why I love that place so much. And these are just random tourists that happen to have booked their vacation at the resort. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think people book about a year in advance. That place they they do get full, but you have everyone from people that were there in the solar shower days. 25 years ago who have been coming every single year since. Wow. And then you have people that have been saving for 15 years to go there for their first time ever. Yeah. And and the dynamic and, you know, social experiment that I get to see as a professional surfer, you know, but to see surfing like that, I get to see where surfing is at, who the surfers are and and kind of what makes people stoked. And it was really cool for me to, to be on that side of everything yeah, and, and get to know just that kind of innocent stoke and see how fired up people are to still travel to go surfing. Because um, that's what I'm most addicted to in life. It's what I need in my life to really kind of keep me sane and balanced and keep the, the hard times of life away. It's like I pack my bag and I go surfing and I'm in my happy place. Yeah, uh, And that's turns out there's a lot of other people out there that are the same way mm-hmm. <laughs> i've just been crazy lucky to have it as a career right like i think people are like yeah you know to really make it in life you you do what you love and i'm like if i wasn't a professional surfer every day i would be figuring out how to go surfing like <laughs> it is straight up what i need in my life um i just realized at 12 years old that I liked that more than any other sport that i had ever done and put my head down and just was like how do i get more of this because this is too good. This is the best. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. A lot of this conversation, I want to tap into the idea and the notion of professional surfing because that has changed a lot since you were 12 years old. Yeah. So you mentioned... um, the photographs of you on that particular wave, who shot the photos? Did you hire that photographer to be there? What did that exchange look like? Well, nowadays it's you see these mega swell events and all the world surfers are showing up, but also all the world's photographers and videographers are coming too. Right. Um, so that day in the channel, there had to have been you know 30 different media people there for working for the magazines or really they're just for themselves to capture a historic moment. Um, so times like this, you just, you know that it's an event where, you know, every it's breath gonna is going to be captured. Yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise what you want to do, you know, as a professional surfer, I am a reflection, an ambassador, um, a promoter of the brands that, that sponsor me, you know, and it's thanks to them that I get to live this life of travel and, uh, the dream in my opinion so you know it's how do you advertise them and i always bring a filmer and you try to bring a photographer and uh i like to be very uh discreet on the places that i go of course <laughs> um we like to tell a story and and really especially the fun i've always been into the aspect of of the fun of surfing so i want to whenever i go on a trip i'm like how can i provide the feeling of why i'm going here and if i'm not going to a place having fun then i'm blowing it that's my personal surf goal i think other people have different ones and you can see it in their personality and how they put their edits out but i've always done this thing called turkey melt which was a random name i don't know how i came up with but i'd bring my filmer mike nolte and we'd make a three to five minute video um probably have 30 to 40 hours of footage but my demographic being teenagers to let's say you know mid 30s um the attention span this day isn't your what was my Taylor Steele 45 minute sure. movie growing up now it's your social media one minute post and your three to five minute edit that comes with it so it's always crazy that the amount of footage that we shave off I'm like that was a surf movie mm-hmm. but that's not what's getting the, the people excited so you always I always try to keep in mind like okay cool what are what are my fans and what are the world going to be stoked on right now and it's three to five minutes. So I remember when I was a kid, it was it was shameful to be a self promoter. It was like black wetsuit, no like fewer stickers, no color. Just keep your head down, do your thing. Somebody else will promote for you. Things have certainly transitioned now, but Turkey Melt hit at a really ripe time where it was kind of like, look, uh, brands are backing off in terms of what they're going to do for you. You need to do it yourself and. The Coffin uh, Brothers with Young Wise Tales. Certainly, probably Dane was leading that charge yep. with Marine Layer. Yep. And I, I, Matt Wilkinson did his, a thing for a while too that was amazing <laughs> that he dropped. But um, to f- 
probably just to focus on the tour, but your turkey melt stuff, I always really enjoyed. And I think you certainly um, fulfilled your sponsor's uh, obligations and responsibilities by doing that form and documenting a lot of those things. I would argue, you're saying it got shaved down from 45 minutes to three to five minutes. I'm arguing now nobody has three to five minutes. Now it is exclusively 60 seconds on Instagram. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. It's it's a weird, weird time that we're living in. But I wanted to ask you about who shot those photos for you on that you posted of that wave. Oh, um, well, there's uh, Scott Weiner, who has been to that island so many times. He was a, pho- a photographer on the island. He shot one, and then Todd Glazer, who came with Kelly, um, had a had a cool angle. And then there was another guy that his angle was my favorite, to be honest, and his boat was sitting further in. So I honestly posted all three because I'm like, whatever, this is a ride that I want to remember forever. And when do you get all of these angles of a memorable yeah. moment of your life? Um, so Glazer, <laughs> Glazer, who was Weiner there with? Weiner was there with the island. He, he okay. was working on the island um, providing photos for the guests. Got it. Uh, he, he goes every year. And that guy, honestly, is a guru at reading all of the weather. And for the two weeks leading up to that forecast, every morning I'd watch his eyes just go bigger. He's like, it got bigger. Hmm. And we're going, well, Weiner, how big is it going to be? He's like, I don't know, man. He's like, these numbers, this is real. Like, it's yeah. going to be huge. So from the business side, you're there for five weeks. And like you said, part of your responsibility is being an ambassador to your sponsors. From that five weeks, are you able to generate enough or were you able to generate enough to make it worth well, the time and I, I had fun. I mean, I always bring a GoPro with me and it's an easy way for me to have my own content and create it with my little vision. Um, I had a really funny moment just getting caught inside. I didn't make the barrel and my camera was still running and I'm like, oh God, I'm going to take this wave on the head. And I was just still running the camera at my face. So I'm like, screw it. I'm just going to film the whole thing. Like everybody you talk to has done one of these tower tours and it ended up being like an eight wave tower tour over 10 minutes. And, uh, I turned that into a one minute edit. (laughs) Um, but it was, it's just rad to see the relativity of that. You know, I think it's hard for people to relate sometimes to the actual wave being ridden, I agree. but they can relate to the, to the tough times, you know, and they can relate to the wipeouts to the didn't make the wave and this happened. And for me at this point in my life, I'm like, well, how do I, you know, we're all the same and sure I go on adventures that some people would never want to do and others, you know, hope to do one day. But I'm like, how do I relate? And, and I think that that for me at this point of my life and what I want to do is my job of surfing is do it in a relatable way where people really can feel it and, uh, you know, make a bit more than just what I call surf porn. Right. It's just that edit of the greatest things you've ever seen. But man, I want to see people fall. I want to see people be pissed. I want to see them be stoked. Like I loved, I loved Bruce Brown's films because you got the whole picture, you know, and, and we're losing that now. We've lost the story of surfing. We've lost the feeling, the emotion of surfing. And, and we got to bring that back. You know, we got to keep it fun and we got to, we got to do it our way. So to hit on your topic, when I first started in this, my incentives were magazine covers, um, surf movie incentives and now what's built into everybody's contracts is uh social media incentives and it goes down to number of likes comments how many followers you have there's adjustable bonuses within there 
or at least all of you guys should have that in there if you're listening to this, <laughs> because it's become as important, if not more important. And uh, sad to see the magazines go away. Sad to see you know Surfer getting thinner and thinner as it goes. Yeah. But this is the age that we're living in. We're living in the digital marketing age. Yeah. And when I went to school, they never taught me anything about self marketing in any of this. So I, I've been a a test tube baby, I feel like, in all of this, learning how to go go along. We all have. And I always try to tell the kids now, I'm like, hey, pretend your grandma is is on your Instagram every post you do. Because you need to understand that you should have uh, some advisory on your posts because, you know, um, people are scouting as, as employees. Your companies are watching how you're representing their brand. Like... I think the punk rock time isn't there as much. Like surfing has become much more professional and there is an opportunity for an individual to create their own brand under sponsors, but it, it now becomes up to you. Yeah. It come, I have an opportunity to create my surfing life mm-hmm. where when I first started doing this, I was going to contests every single weekend yeah. at 12 years old. I look at kids now and they're in homeschool at 13 and I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, I surf lowers every day. Really? And what else? Like, oh, I'm doing homeschool. I'm like, yeah. Hey, man, I've tried to surf all day. Trust me, I've tried it. It's impossible. And I'm like, I know lowers doesn't break every day. And I think that the youth right now needs to be challenged to be more than just a surfer. And I think that there's a lot of pressure from parents. I think there's a lot of pressure from sponsors on kids at such a young age before they've even gone through life. You know, at, at 13, gosh, you can have an incredible ability, but like, has a life-altering moment happened yet? No. Is it coming? For sure. Where it, You know, who are your friends at that point? Who's on in your corner to back you at that? And I just am praying that it's just not some surf career. Yeah. When, when life hits, you know? Like, I, I want these kids to have a solid foundation of, of uh, you know, emotional strength and, you know, some some smarts within there to, to deal with, with the wheel, you know, because the industry is constantly turning and it's how do you stay relevant? Why are you more relevant than that person four years younger than you with the same ability? What are you doing different? Who are you? And and where's your individuality? And, and I feel like we get less and less kind of, of characters in our sport Totally. Because everybody's watching each other all day long. We're processing so much information of other people that we're now conforming our lives because that's what's working for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I want to see more individuals in the sport. You know, I want to see that. You know, I think Mason Ho has been the biggest breath of fresh air that we have. And uh, he's done it his own way. But, um, but even he, I feel like, is... Um... 100% surfing all the time. Yeah. As opposed to somebody like Kelly, who I feel like has a very diverse set of interests, and then that's reflected in his surfing, you know? Well, and then that's where you realize that the greatest surfer of all time was also the best example for someone like myself that could have ever been. Mm-hmm. You know, Kelly Slater was very conscious of how he promoted himself, who, you know, who he was reflecting upon. Like, he, Kelly, he's just a good guy. Yeah. He he was the best surfer in the world, but he also was the most marketable person there's ever been in our sport. Yeah. He could talk. You know, he he just he had it all. Yeah. And uh 
But again, within this whole new structure, you you can be and do whatever you want. Like you really can. It's better that you do actually. It is a hundred percent. And and I just am like, okay, so I have this incredible platform, and then it get, it comes back to me of like, what am I doing to fill my my cup of giving back as well? Sure. Because I am given so much opportunity right now, and to have like this incredible social media following and these fans that are supporting and really keeping my flame alive. Yeah. How do I give back and like be a human and offset this uh, selfish surf career? And and uh, I think that that's just as important to be giving as well as taking. Um, and that, and that's been something for me that I, I've I've thought's great. You know, there's so many ocean therapy things out there right now, and there's an opportunity to be real to the public and not just post your greatest surf photo that day. You know, like, hey, maybe I should tell people that like I didn't have a good day today. Yeah. Or maybe you know I'm I'm dealing with some serious depression over you know a death of my brother from 14 years ago, and I'm I'm setting up a sibling loss grief group next weekend. Yeah, you know, I had that in my notes that I wanted to get to, um, but let's go ahead and go there now. Your brother, Chris, obviously played a huge role in your mm-hmm. life. And so I wanted to give you the chance to either tell that story firstly, certainly maybe as a cautionary tale, sure, but then also um, to discuss the work that you're doing now and kind of how you deal with some of that. I think depression's a relatable topic oh, and yeah. how you kind of handle some of that. So tell his story firstly. Yeah, so when I was 17, uh, my brother who introduced surfing into our family um, fell into a, a drug addiction and came to our family, went through a sobriety program and six months later used one more time and, and that took his life. And I was... Just one relapse. One relapse. Crazy. Yeah, I think he had gone back to... The same amount that he had built tolerance up to and being you know getting that out of the system because looking at it hearing horror stories like that you just think oh it's this gradual progression and you kind of see the end coming and then you hopefully can thwart it before the end that's a scary notion to think that you can be clean from something use it once and that's the only chance you get i think the hardest thing as i go through this is like we all make mistakes the mistake that he made took his life. And at that age, you know, late teens, early 20s, especially, well, everybody is so curious, you know. Yeah. You're just curious. You have no idea who you are and you think you're supposed to be doing this or that. And, um, you know, through him, I learned that our family, we have a really big addictive gene. And that was the worst and hardest lesson for me to learn, but it became my fear of, you know, drugs and alcohol and what that can do to you as a human. And then shortly after I started watching what it did to my friends as we went through our later years, what what it did to their careers. Um, so that was a lesson that I learned and, and uh, stayed really away from for the most part. And, and uh, I just couldn't let that affect everything. And when he passed away, I just, I pretty much gave up surfing. I, uh, I went to surf again and it was it was so close to him right that it was it hurt too much i actually went surfing and i'm like this sucks because i was already in such an emotional hole that it just punched me while i was down there and i I thought it was gonna be the outlet i'm like i'm gonna go surf and i'm gonna find the light and i'm gonna be 
feeling good. And it was the exact opposite. Um, and a couple months later, I went and did an NSSA, which is our amateur uh, national surfing organization. And I don't, I didn't plan on this, and I still don't really know how it came about. But I was putting my leash on. I had a jersey on, and and right before we paddled out, where my brother would have been sitting, he came to every contest. He was just the most supportive brother. This this feeling came over me of like, what are you doing? You know why? Why are you? so down and and why are you so negative and and all of this bad when all your brother did was give you all this good like look where you're sitting right now he gave this to you and what would he want me to be doing in this moment and it would be to to go for it you know in that moment to go and kick some butt in the contest but it was a bigger picture of go live and and if anything do it for him do it in his honor and move forward because at that point i realized I am throwing away everything that he did for me mm-hmm. just because he's not here anymore. And that moment at 17 is one of the clearest moments I've ever had in my life. It, it, shaped, it continues to shape my life now. Um, so as I've gone through my career, really one of the most fun things for me is to talk. Like I love doing this right now. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable and a little bit sweaty and doing this, but it's like... <laughs> I'm doing it with a smile like I, I just I can't not talk about him enough and if I receive an award or I'm doing an interview it's just his name will come up no matter what and those are my personal goals it's like little check boxes going yeah I did that but I also got to do it for him mm. and that's that was my personal journey um, I've probably spoken to over 15,000 high school kids um, with no notes I go into these talks <laughs> And just stand in front of typically the entire student body of a thousand kids and kind of just start talking. And three months after he passed away, I was in the school that I went to speaking to the student body three months after his his death because I was so freaked out that it was even possible. I was like, I have to tell everyone about this, you know, and my parents were very open. You know, people can be very judgmental about drug overdoses, suicides all of those personal ways of death. And my parents just held their ground the whole time, were truthful, and I think that we aren't taught to just give our emotions, you know? And I have the biggest walls in the world. I suck emotionally, but um, I have to do it this way with my brother or my life will stop. Yeah. And, and I just know that that is the last thing that he wants. Um, so forever I had this kind of guilty feeling that I didn't do a surf event in his honor or whatever. And seriously, for the last like six years, I've had it made up in a post before and deleted it that I was just going to run some type of grief therapy for siblings in his honor. And I was just going to do it ghetto on my own through my social media. And I didn't do it. I walked away from it. I'm like, well, it's too gnarly. And it took me over the last six years and now 14 years, I finally did it a month ago and I just put it out on the internet. Hey, I'm Alex. Most of you know my story. If you don't, my brother passed away from a drug overdose. Who else is out there like me still dealing with this? Or it's even earlier on and like, you're just tripping on life. Yeah. And 25 people showed up and we had this incredible day that sat down, told my story and then went surfing 
and had soft tops and wetsuits down there for people who had never surfed. Because I want people to, to understand that you can't just sit on the couch. You can't, you can't let your life end and just waste away. And for me, surfing saved my life. Mm. And it, I don't know about you, but I've never gone surfing and came out of a surf going, I feel worse. Never. It's, it's that little heat. It's like, God, it's so crazy. My, my wheel of surfing is so dynamic in that career, personal, like self-help. Um, so there were people there that, you know, for two years they had done nothing and they went surfing or rode away for the first time, whatever. And they got out of their head because our mind is our worst enemy, especially in overthinking. Yeah. And they had that moment, you know, it's that moment that I had, they got to have it for a second. And it was so cool to see that brightness back. And then after our surf, this is two hours into it, we sat back down and I gave everyone the chance to share their story thinking that most people would pass and all 25 people shared wow and i realized i'm like oh my god i've gone to therapy a couple times but being in a room alone with somebody that you don't know i'm like this is not me i didn't feel like being open and talking but i sat there i'm like holy crap i'm running a grief group for the first time ever and i'm like i'm the mediator i guess (laughs) Man, it was. I actually started laughing at myself time. one time. But, yeah. but I, I, I think what really happened that day is it just was people with an unfortunate common aspect in their life that felt comfortable and familiar with each other. And because it was that vibe and, and that was the platform, and even for me, it allowed me to say things I've never said before. And, it, and this light bulb went off. I'm like, gosh, what are we doing in this life right now? of neglecting that people helping people. You know, I, I see it driving down PCH every day. It's just, they're, they're in their car, get out of their way. You know, I feel like we can, we get stuck in this bubble. And that was really one of the most powerful moments of my life. And it really, and continues now to really push me to get away from myself. And what can I do within this incredible life that I've lived? But like, how can I help someone else? Yeah. Because there's times in my life where I was so self, I've missed everything, everything. My parents' birthdays, weddings. I mean, pretty much lost friends over this whole career because I had a personal goal that I was willing to give everything and sacrifice seriously everything in my life for. And I was lucky to have good parents along the way, but now I'm going, hang on, I don't really feel related I don't relate to myself in that way much anymore. I feel like now as I'm going further, I'm like, dude, how can I help you? Like, mm. what do you, what do you need today? Yeah. And, uh, that took a lot of time well, for me to be honest. <laughs> I, I've would reckon the people at that, uh, at the beach that day wouldn't have shared prior to the surf experience. I think that the fact that you did it after the surf experience gave everybody you know, the ocean just humbles you and makes you a lot of different things. And I also think that surfing is unique in that respect where um, you and I find it therapeutic because it's our thing, but I think it is uniquely therapeutic in a way that skateboarding isn't or snowboarding isn't or anything else isn't in that you're certainly convening with nature. Also just exposing yourself to the cold water, going through the elements like that does something unique, you know, and there's kind of a baptizing uh, in a sense, a certain spirituality with it that I think is unique. Um, Yeah, I mean, with our sport, we have a teacher, 
and that's that's the ocean and it doesn't matter what day it is out of nowhere it can really pull the rug from under you know i tore my acl in half on a one foot wave doing a backside turn that's a day i'll never forget worst injury you've had in surfing yes yeah on a one foot wave where i'd never expect it yeah you know and so people are like i would never do what you do and i'm like hey (laughs) i've experienced all levels of this sport just like you have and it's waves like you ride that i mean it it doesn't matter it's it's day by day and it it always i feel like the ocean is there to tell us like dude settle down have some respect exactly yeah yeah you're not better than me and there's that constant tug and pull of well today i want to try to be better than you and i think that's where we find ourselves accomplishing things in life that we never felt possible and for me i can transfer that into my personal life i mean it's really thanks to situations in the oceans where I go back to life, walking on land, standing in front of important people, and I'm like, this is nothing. Right. What I did yesterday, I thought I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is way easier than that. And, uh, I, God, how, how we lucked out with a sport that has more than just going and doing that one thing. It's, I don't know, it, it gets me thinking. I, that's why I love surfing. It, it challenges me to to be more in my personal life. And uh, it's also a place to challenge yourself, uh, you know, with, with goals. So what more do you want out of a sport? And plus the healing aspects, yeah. it's like well, surfing, surfing's, surfing's it. Talking about dealing with depression, I mean, certainly uh, Chris with drug usage and then any family members trying to survive that, there's gonna be a haunting depression always. And I yeah. think that listeners, can relate to that probably on a lot of different levels. But I don't know if you saw in the news this morning, Anthony Bourdain committed yeah. suicide. Earlier this week, Kate Spade had committed suicide. And I always forget, or I hate to be reminded, I guess, where it's like, oh man, people are struggling with stuff and you have no idea. Right. And you can be sitting idly by and the next day they're gone and you thought they were happy. Like I would never have guessed Anthony Bourdain. What, what does he have to be bummed about? That guy's on the top of the world, you know? But I'm glad to hear you say that element of um, talking about it has been key for you. And it's, I think it's, there's an element of human connectivity that everybody needs. You just need as a human being. It's innate in everybody. And our default is to stay on the couch and to not engage with other humans and to continue driving by on PCH, like you said. (laughs) And we need to be reminded to step out of that comfort zone and reach out to somebody and be like, hey, I noticed that you haven't been posting on social media this past week or whatever it is. How's things going? You doing all right? You know, like, because otherwise you'll stick with your default and not communicate. And then all of a sudden Anthony Bourdain's gone and you're like, what? You know, I think you know, with social media, we all have a choice to be who we want. So you choose the words and you choose the picture you're posting. And more oftentimes than not, people are posting the best times of their life. And that's where I catch myself going, hang on, I can't just do that because I need people to understand that I'm a human, that I deal with depression, anger, anxiety, sleep issues, you, you name it, I got it all. Yeah. Um, but I think that people need to know that so that they're not just following this guy that's living this incredible life, traveling the world, living his dream, which I am. And you'll see me the happiest and most genuine during those times. 
but it's just as important to to show like dude i i make mistakes <laughs> i have flaws i have my issues i'm in your eye so you should probably know this too yeah you know it's and for me it forces me to live it and it's something that when i was younger i didn't care to do i thought for my sponsors and everybody i needed to be a Alex, you know, this crazy guy that's always entertaining and happiest person in the world. True. But now I'm like, gosh, I I can't just be that person. You know, somebody sees me walking down the street. They're like, God, are you having a bad day? I'm like, yeah, dude, I have bad days. Every other day, I probably have a bad day, you know, and, and I'm trying to make choices to, to deal with it. And for me, and it's not for everyone, it's like, I just, I feel the need to do it publicly and that's a part of me giving myself away to let people, you know, be relatable and understand that, you know, we're, we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, some of us have really put our head down and gone forth with certain practices in life and have achieved, you know, incredible things. But it just, it doesn't come without the hardships. Yeah. And I've always enjoyed getting to know the person. Like when I hang out with my heroes that I grew up with, like I got to hang out with the Malloys a couple months ago at a ranch and like I really got to just cruise and we hung out, slept over in this barn, went pig hunting. I'm like, God, you guys are cool, man. Like you're just normal. Like it it was just like hanging out with a friend. I'm going, okay, that's who I need to be if there's ever that person in my life. And I just, I don't think I'm that person, but. You talked about, we talked off air actually about your experience with Kelly surfing the right on Tavarua. Um, and Todd Glazer was shooting the photos. Tell me about that experience. Well, let me start here. How does his foot look? How was he surfing? <laughs> uh, foot looks good. Yeah. I think he, I think he did a, a kind of a late hit on a wave at restaurants and there really wasn't any n- new look to it, but, uh, it looks healthy though. Right. Everything looks good. Okay. Um, he he's got a bit of scar tissue build up above his foot. Like there's there's work to be done. You know, okay. Kelly Slater is not at 100, percent but the Kelly Slater at 85 percent is mind blowing. So you wouldn't know unless you you see him and you're like, okay, he's such a wizard. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I it, it's so fun like to see where he's at in life right now. And you can just tell that there's a lot more kind of grounding, calm piece within him of doing what he wants to do rather than what I think he thinks the public wants him to do with his world title career. Dude, the guy's done everything. Every time I see him, I want to go, man, just just stop. We're, you yeah. Know, you're good. Right. Like, they, you, you, nobody's going to do what you've ever done before. And me as a fan, I'm going, let's get you in some perfect waves at waves that you know about that no one else knows about and let's get you on the gravy train you know because he's still surfing one of the best in the world yeah but i think that he's got a competitive spirit that oh, you and i know nothing oh, about no, I, I know it's the but, gnarliest thing but in the world. you and i can't even relate does. to it you he know can... what i mean it's like he yes he wants to surf perfect waves but more so than beating gabriel in a heat no, he wants to do that too. So that's the allure to come back to competition. Yeah, you know? I think when you, you get a specimen of a human like him, and if we sat and dissected his brain, the amount of calculation and thinking and competitiveness that's in there is why he's the greatest athlete of all time. Right. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, 
and we lived through his era, which is which is crazy. But uh, so what was that session? Right. So there was the big day, but I knew that Kelly was there for the the right as well. Um, it's just a fickle wave. And the funny thing is at Tavaroa, they have this famous photo of him pulling back on this underground mutant and Shane Dorian sitting off to the left of him. And I've stared at that photo for almost 12 years, just blown away. Like that's Tavaroa and that's the right. And, uh, it, I've, I've always wanted to surf it. So he showed up and the next morning the winds are right. And we're sitting in the tower that you check cloud break fun. We're looking to the right and it's just spitting its brains out. I'm like, Hey, Let's go do that now. And we just got a report that Cloudbreak was still 30 to 40 foot faces and glassy and pretty good. So I'm sitting there doing circles going, wait, what? And then Steve Clark, Dave Clark, the uh, founder of the island's brothers there. And, and I told him what's going on. He's like, so are you kidding me? Man, you got to live big. You got to go do that session with Kelly. He's like, that's what this is all about. And I looked at him I'm like, you're so right. You're so right. So we turned away a boat of 30 guys that were going out to cloud break again. And Kelly and I jumped on a ski and <clears throat> Todd and my buddy Nate jumped on the other one for him to, to shoot off of. And we went out to the right. It's a short little drive. And the first way we saw was this underground boiling mutant that just spit its brains out and just started screaming like a little girl. And Kelly's going, yeah, <laughs> we jam out to the lineup and he gave me the first wave for some reason, and I totally read it wrong. We were towing because the current's so bad there. You can't actually really get in the spot to paddle it. Got it. So he whipped me into a wave, and I went to pull into the first section, and it was real almondy, and it just whacked me in the head coming out of it, and then the whole bottom dropped out in the barrel, and I just went head first into it. it. was underwater, underwater, came up, and I was like, oh, my God. I was checking my head, and he drives by. He's like, are you okay? I'm like, dude, I just got so smoked. He started laughing. He's like, come on, get up, get up. And then the next wave came in, and uh, it was it was insane. I knew to not pull into the first section, but pull into the second. <laughs> It took the hard way to learn that lesson, and the thing ended up spitting. I came out looking at Todd and Nate, and then Kelly drives up, and we're all just going, oh, my God. And uh, get back out the back, and I'm like, dude, I'm good. Like, if I don't catch another wave during this session and you catch every wave, that's fine. That's the wave I've always dreamed of here. He's like, really? There is that good? I'm like, it's pretty good out here. And his first wave towed him in. I did a terrible job of towing him in. I was like, oh, God, he's going to hate me for life. But I think it put him in the right spot. Watching from the back, and there's just pistons going with the white water, and the thing just spits its brains out. And then he comes out and come up, and I'm like, uh, how was that? And he's got this big old grin, and all he says was, pretty interesting. <laughs> and just starts laughing, and I drive it's by. Such an intellectual. It's just like, pretty interesting. And I, and I started nudging him in the ribs on the ski on the way back out. I'm like, did that make it worthwhile? He's like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm like, yes, yes. So you get out there and just stop, and it's oil glass, and you can see cloud break off in the distance. You can see the barrels from where we're sitting, and we're going, wow, it looks pretty good out there. But then Kelly just goes into this kind of talk of, he's like, man, this is, where I'm at in life. Like I would much rather be doing this, you know, with just us out than going and, and being with a big crew at the more known good wave. He's like, th he's like, this is, this is what makes me happy. And I'm like, that's so freaking cool, man. Like yeah. it's great to, to hear that stuff because the day before 
we all celebrated that big swell that night and Kelly got up and did a cheers. He's like, this has been the best day of my life. And we're, I mean, all of us like kind of stopped. We're like, what did you just say? You know, knowing everything that he had done. And Kelly that day served restaurants by himself during the morning of the big day. And uh, I saw the photos. He's just getting barreled out of his mind by himself for four hours. And then he came out and paddled what would be his biggest barrel at Cloudbreak, one of the best rides of the day, paddled. And I don't know, man, the dynamics of what went on during that whole swell and what it was for each person, it was pretty, pretty radical. Like, yeah. I think it was very spiritual for a lot of people. You know, when the waves get to that size and those swells and those emotions happen, when you meet your goals during then, it's like you really do feel like you conquered something in life. Yeah. And it was just great to hear and see Kelly like elated and just giving this truth of what that thing was. I'm like, yeah, it's 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 fun to hear that. So where are the photos and footage of that session? There's no footage. We didn't have a, a video guy, but we have photos of Todd Glazer and Surfer Magazine. I put them up on their website. I just stole all their photos and put it on my Instagram. <laughs> and I'm like... They didn't really tell the story of the of that, and for me, it was one. It will be one of the most memorable sessions of my life. So I'm like, all right, I'll just tell my version of it, <laughs> right? Which is basically what I told you now. But do you feel like they undersold it then by putting it on their website without the story? Uh, I don't know about that. I just don't know if they understood how special that really was that that session. Or at the other time, I started going, maybe it's just me, <laughs> because no. think about it. I mean, you think about me at that wave with Kelly with only us getting spit out of barrels which of course it wasn't 30 foot cloud break and guys were getting the best waves of their swell during that time but it's just like steve clark said he's like live big man do go do that you know do yeah do something different and and it's those moments that that you'll remember more than anything and uh kelly chimed in he's like oh cool to hear your perspective and i'm going dude tell yours <laughs> i'm i cannot believe how many like life defining experiences that guy probably has that he doesn't even get around to telling yeah because he just lives that rad of a lifestyle you yeah know? It, you can't but, even distill it all down and no. it almost it's like you can't even put it into words anyways photos don't do it justice it's just you want to live in the moment yeah. to a certain degree too but i think that's the fun of this whole thing too is you know being able to share an aspect of it because i'm still such a fan especially of certain surfers and whatnot. And uh, it's just great to see people right back going, like, feeling exactly like I would have. I'm like, right. yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Like, the, this stuff just doesn't happen. And so when it does, I make sure to realize, like, the gratitude within it. Yeah. And let go of the, oh, I need to get this wave or this or that. It's like, dude, sit back and realize what's going on right now, where you are, how many people wish they could be doing this. You know, but then get your head on your shoulders and go make the most of it. Mm -hmm. You know, like like get in there and, and do your best to get amongst it um, and try to get what, what you came there for. And uh, it's different. It's different with everyone. So how do you make a living as a pro surfer nowadays? Um, there was an article on Beach Grit this week about the disappearance of the free surfer. It's like, what happened to Creed and uh dane and craig anderson and like all these guys where'd those guys go and then he kind of broke down exactly where they're at and it turns out they're living life yeah no longer with the main sponsor that they yeah. once had but they're living a life and maybe a more gratifying life even yeah um but the goal would be to be able to fly to fiji 
whenever there is that purple blob. But how do you finance that? How do you do that? How do you be a pro free surfer nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I'm in that boat. I'm without a major sponsor. I have been for two years. Um, I was with Vulcan for 18 years. Uh, but I still have Body Glove now. is on 20 years. And my career has really been based off of loyalty, obviously. Um, there's different aspects of jumping around brand to brand and, and going for the extra dollars. But I've always just associated myself, you know, as a thank you of like, I'm not leaving. Like, how can I stay and how can we continue to build this incredible thing? Um, what has changed there now is the, the platform of doing one-offs with brands. So my contracts used to be at times three to four years. Uh, it wasn't rare for a guy to have a five-year contract. And now what's happening is you're getting these one-offs with brands that want to be associated with you that will provide um, something for you <laughs> in just doing a post. Um, and I think male surfing is less involved with that. You see the females doing it more than others in surfing. Sure. And I think that's great. I'm like, hey, we have this right now. Go for it. Yeah. Is that the ultimate sellout? For sure. <laughs> But but at this point, it's like, we're all sold out. I was going to say, selling out has a negative connotation. But... We all do it. Right. And Pro it, surfer or just accountant. It, it's where it's where we're at, you know. So, so that's what you see a, a lot of people doing is, you know, when you're seeing a person posting, you know, they're sitting there holding a protein shake. Yeah. They specifically did that because they're getting paid by that company to do it. Per thousand of followers that you have. Yeah, and then the rates of that are within the amount of followers. It usually starts at, well, it'll start at 5,000, but like 50,000 is big, 100 is big. Then you get into 250 to 500, and like people are making, people are going to retire off of this whole thing. Yeah. I don't think in our industry, not in our industry, but you see, you know, models in that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're being smart with their money, and they will straight up retire over millionaire from yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. And, and that's it. But, our industry is still core, and I don't think that's why you don't see everybody doing that. And the major companies are still there, um, and there is an opportunity to just keep the formula that's been over decades. Mm -hmm. um, it's just less people now. Right. You used to see team rosters, and there were 50 people from every region of every country. Now you're seeing team rosters of five guys. But those guys are high-paid athletes. But they're yeah. So right now, people are really only investing in their high-paid surfers. Right. You're getting less of that trickle-down exactly uh, money tree effect, which is why you see guys that are the best surfers in the world without a main sponsor. Yeah. Um, a lot of it's timing. They had they had to meet a number, and that guy's salary was a great amount for them to put back in their marketing budget. Yeah. And save their asses. It's it's business. Like at the end of the of day, course. professional surfing is the ultimate dream and a very incredible life. But you need to be smart. I thought about it today. I'm like, what if my Instagram crashed? Like I woke up this morning. I'm like, what if my Instagram crashed? Well, wow, that would be really gnarly for me. Yeah. Then I thought about it. I'm like, would I redo it? Would I start this all over again? Like all. For me, it's been like six or seven years of, of daily like engagement 
Or what if Instagram, what if there just becomes a new social media that you don't transition quick enough to and Instagram becomes MySpace? And that will happen, but I think that's still years off. And it's it's the young generation now that like this is their, this is specifically their career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at certain of them going, man, like you just need to put a little more time and effort into that. Yeah. I'm always baffled by people who don't comment back. Like I'll, I'll write back to someone and they're all, I'll, you know, like, yeah, thanks so much. And they're back. Oh my God, you wrote back. And come on, I'm, I'm in my opinion, minute in this whole thing. There there's your very well known, massive following surfers. I'm like, those guys don't write back to you. Who? I mean, a lot of people don't have the time, man. Sometimes I don't post something knowing for the rest of the night, I'm going to be distracted and I can't engage with this. So I'll wait to post it. Yeah, but I think as a professional surf athlete, I can't ever put that statement into our career. Like, True. That is your responsibility. You always have time. for Because it's the people that make your world go round. Like those are the reason, at least the way I look at it, like these people are why I get to do this. Yeah. And whether that reflects brands or not, okay. But I can still always say, no, these, these are my people. Yeah. And that's powerful. I think you just... For me, I'm like I always. You always need to engage and represent, and like allow that to be important in your life because it it should be. I have another thought about um, that notion of the disappearance of the free surfer, or certainly not as well funded free surfers. Um, is the best surfing in the world happening on the CT right now? You know, I I don't think it was when I was young. There was always a really big contingent of free surfers that were putting out better video parts than anything on the CT. But I look back at the last couple of years and I'm like, dude, Owen at Cloudbreak a couple, two or three years ago, Felipe at J Bay last year, the pipe stuff, like it's gnarly. The CT is producing more highlights than what I'm seeing out in the free surf world. Yeah, I think that they've structured their uh, judging for a more progressive, you know, goal. Right. And seeing, especially the above the lip stuff, like the progression is unbelievable. Yeah. And, and it is exciting to watch. And there's so many changes with the wave pool and events being taken away, cloud break and pipeline. It's, we're probably going through the biggest transition of our competitive tour maybe ever. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, I'm off in Fiji worried about, you know, am I going to eat bacon or not this morning? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the biggest gap that the... WSL is leaving open for guys like you is they're not they don't have the ability to adapt quickly when a new swell pops up so their tour schedule is set in advance and sure they might have Idolo who's going to do the craziest air this year and even the big wave tour they might end up at a big wave spot but when that Fiji swell shows up they can't drop everything and get there and that's where you'll always have relevance you know I it's yeah i mean i just real like for me i was the most competitive person in the world and my story is was interesting in that i ended up getting pleurisy uh when i was 22 and was hospitalized and put in the emergency room for seven days draining a liter and a half of fluid and that was in january i was on the qs for three years at that point was ranked 49th and that's when they took the top 36 i think So I was in the hunt, you know, for that next year to be in, you know, close to to making the tour. 
So I went through this hospital experience and I went to enter a contest and they took all my points away. That's right. I remember this story. And it was it's still a moment of disbelief in my life because I was just a competitive animal. It, it's what I would put a jersey on and just turn into that guy. And I thought that's what my surfing life was. Um, so because you had missed a number of events? No. Because I, for, because I didn't turn my, what was it, $700 insurance membership in on time, which was probably January 1st. And then they did give me an extension, but I just was almost dead. So I wasn't really paying attention to life. <laughs> um, so because I didn't turn the membership in on time, they took all of my points away. And that was a very pivotal moment in my career. And it's even as a surfer, because I was like, I am, a, I am the WQS. I was the guy, you know. And that, was a, that year I just was so mad. I would put a jersey on and I was just still angry at the whole situation that I lost my whole love for the tour, for that organization. Um, I felt like they had a choice that they could have made some type of uh, I don't know what exception exception for sure and they didn't and they just said look we're gonna make you're the example if we don't go through with this then this rule doesn't exist ouch it's like damn that's crazy I mean I, I'm one of your highest rated guys I put over $150,000 into your tour I'm not you know I'm like I'm your guy and they're like no you're not I was like whoa that was one of my first um, realizations in life of how fragile this whole thing is and right. how it, you can think that you're on top of the world and the next moment it's just gone. Um, so I didn't find the love in that the, the following year going back to starting all over again and on the little rated ones. And I just felt like I was just jump change. And uh, my sponsors, thank God, Volcom and Body Love were like, hey, take take this next year off and go and do whatever you've wanted to. And I was like, really? And so I went and towed the Code Red swell at Chopu. Uh, we went and paddled that first big Fiji swell, the Bruce swell. And that was all in the first couple months. And I just, my whole world changed. I'm like, this is the happiest I've, I've been in surfing in years. My contracts got ripped up. I got bonuses. And I just started laughing. I'm like, okay, it is true. Everything happens for a reason. Whoever tried to kill me on this one to make me wake up and realize that my path was not destined as a tour competitive surfer. And that's to segue back on this whole tour talk. It's like, I'm so far away from that in my life now. Um, I won a big wave tour contest and was on it for a year. And then I blew my ACL and uh, fell off of that. <laughs> So there's there's been moments to be a part of the tour, but it just seems to not keep working out for me. Yeah. What media <laughs> What media do you follow nowadays? What surf media do you follow? Do you subscribe to magazines? Do you go to certain I, websites? I still yeah, I have a surfer magazine. We, I, we must must be over like 20 years now. Wow. I'll always follow the surf magazines. I still, especially my morning reading, I'm like surf magazines. Okay. I I have a place in my heart for them because that's surfing to me. I still own a VHS recorder right over there because I watch all of Taylor Steele's videos still. Good for you, man. Yeah, like I love it. I still think the greatest surf movie ever is Searching for Tom Curran. Oh, yeah. And uh, No arguments there. No, and it, it, you know, I still, for me, again, I have this fan 
you know, feeling and nostalgia for my, the last two decades of my life. And there's certain things that bring me back to being a little kid. And it, it reignites that stoke of like, yeah, you're damn right. This is why you're still trying to surf every day. Yeah. Because it's still the greatest thing ever in my life. And uh, I'm still learning. For, I have a lot to learn on my surfing, for sure. I don't think you're ever like the best you think you could be. But it just continues to shape my life as an individual. And, and I think that that's where I got very, very lucky at a crazy young age of 12 years old to go, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Yeah. And now at 32, I wake up every morning going, what's a surf doing? You know, or checking in with my sponsors. How can I help today? I'm still invested in this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's cool. I think it's cool. Who are your favorite surfers to watch nowadays? My favorite surfers to like watch. Like if something pops up, if there's a video of somebody on Instagram while you're scrolling, who will you always stop to watch? Wow. <laughs> you know what's funny is Gavin Beshin's one of them, but I grew up with him forever. You know, it, I think that for me, I like seeing those individuals that were very like almost mythical now on Instagram and you watch them on, on what gets them stoked and it's awesome. Like Ozzy Wright's one of those. Um, you don't really see much of Dave Rostovich, but I've always just thought that he is one of the most underground guys ever. He's still mythical, man. Yeah. Um, I heard he doesn't even have a cell phone. <laughs> probably doesn't. But like that guy's surfing is unbelievable. The recent one that I've been tripping on is, do you remember Brendan Margison? Yeah. Margo? Yeah. Well, he's resurfaced through a lot of people's old clips, and that dude was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. So radical. So I guess now... Talk about now, free surfers Now when I sit listening to this stuff, it sounds like I just watch a lot of people from the, the past. <laughs> <laughs> You're living in yesteryear, uh, reflecting I'm, on the olden I'm, days. I'm, I don't know. I just... There's something about surfing, I would say, 10, 15 years ago that... The lines that were drawn, the style that was involved, it's different to me. I, I look on Instagram and I watch a kid go the line, down the line, do a crazy full rotation air reverse, and I'm like, next. Yeah. Because everybody's doing that. Yeah. So you, you watch Taylor Knox, and I'm like, oh, God, that was beautiful, man. Yeah. He just did a bottom turn into a carve, and I'm like, I'm going to watch that three or four times. I mean, that stuff's timeless. That never gets old. That's why you're still watching, searching for Tom Curran, you know. But um, I agree with you. Gav Bashan and Brendan Marginson are great examples of very unique styles and lines in surfing. Oh, um, what about Machado? How about that? Okay. still ripping, dude. Somebody who to this day, he puts a clip up from his little local beach break and I'm like, um, you surf as good as you did when you were going for the world title? It's so gnarly. And, and that guy's just cool. Like, you yeah. can see with him that he is just a down-to-earth guy, shaping surfboards with his family, doing what makes him happy. Like, you could imagine at this point in his life, he could do anything. And I'm like, God, you're doing it. You, you are happy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're way past your career. You're still an affluent uh, surfer. Yeah. But, like, man, you're still living it. Like totally. I, I love... There's, there's certain people like him, Kelly, Dorian, they've expanded surfing and the length of surfers' careers. It, it used to be, what, let's say 30, right? Go up to the yeah. 2000s and guys would drop off the tour by 30 and then you'd never hear of them again. And then Kelly came along, blew that door. Shane came along, 
as a tour surfer, but then went into the big wave realm and put that really on the map in his early 40s. You know, and guys like Rob are still doing it. Shane looks more fit now than he did when he was on tour. Yeah, he's a freak of nature. He really is. He's and a, same thing with Sonny Garcia. Like in the last couple of years, so gnarly. It's it's fun, and it always brings me back to like, is it surfing? Is it the actual sport of surfing that is keeping people goal-oriented, fit, eating well, so that they can still go out and surf the way they want to? Right. I know that's what it is for me. Yeah. That's why I'll go to yoga or train in the gym or whatever, because totally. I'm like, man, I still want to. I want to surf fast. I want to surf small waves. I want to not get hurt in big waves. Like. Right. Oh, wow, this is nuts. Surfing is shaping my entire health. <laughs> it really does. It's a good point. Um, what's next? What do you have next in terms of trips and that sort of stuff? Uh, what is next? I'm going to do another sibling grief group. I'm sitting here going, wow, I need to do another one. So, How do people follow that stuff? I just do it off. I'm doing it very uh, guerrilla style off of my Instagram, which is A underscore gray. Um, I created a Facebook called A Gray Surf Therapy. It's a closed group because I want it to be for people that need to be there. I think there's like 25 members right now. Nice. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm going to do one of those again. So the last weekend of June, I'll be doing one of those in the South Bay. Okay. Um, and I'll probably do a post pretty soon about that. And I think forever just, you know, working towards getting back on the road and and finding new places or going back to those special places. I think I think a lot of you know what's funny is all these a lot of these places are very crowded now, but there's a lot of spots that are just as good as they've ever been, but people forgot about. So yeah. You just go back to those. Right. Well, actually that perfect before we go, it reminded me your trip with Greg Browning recently. Yeah. Was that Canada? Well, we went to the East Coast. We were in the northern east side of the coast. It was not Canada. Okay. We weren't okay. that far up. But it's a place that I've never been. And uh, we went on the biggest storm of that entire montage that was just nuts over there on the East Coast this year. And it was radical. The coastline we were on was the hardest coastline I've ever been to to check a wave, but then also try to find a wave that was rideable. And... Uh, there's a new crop of guys surfing up there. There's like five or let's call it 10 at the most. And there's no wave that you're like, I'm going to learn how to surf on that. There, It's all this really raw open ocean onto very shallow rock. And these guys, it was funny. I, felt, I was on the trip and I swear they were bringing me around going, they've been wondering like, is that surfable? And I look at him, I'm like, dude, that's not surfable. I, I'm not I'm not even going to try that. They're like, okay, cool. We'll check this around the corner. We go a mile around the corner. And they're like, what about that? I'm like, maybe on high tide? And like one of these ways, we came back on high tide, and there was nowhere to paddle out. I was honestly really nervous and scared. But the guys were psyched. They're like, yeah, you're gonna, you know, we've surfed this before, but we want to see. And I paddled out there and was pulling into closeouts, like all this stuff, scratching my head going like, I don't know if I want to be crash test dummy here. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun because I'd never chased an East Coast storm. Uh, we went through blizzards. We were in Body Glove, made a new six mil wetsuits, and I was wearing seven mil mitts and seven mil boots. So living that, that cold lifestyle that East Coast surfers religiously live. Southern California, I mean, what, we may put on a 4.3 in 59 degree weather. Yeah. Those guys are surfing in like 32 degree water, walking through snow, 
kind of regularly. Yeah. And I was stoked to get a taste of that. Um, and it's just, it's radical when you see the surf community on that coast. Yeah. Like it's way bigger than you think. And they're so hardcore. Like they are diehard surfers and those storms come in a flash. So you may only have a two hour window. And if you don't know where to be and you're not on it at that moment, you missed it. Right. And I was just sitting there laughing at myself. We were walking all these forest paths and coming out to these places. And I'm like, man, this is hard, but, did, but rewarding at the end. Did you ever end up scoring great waves? We ended up scoring. We, we totally changed up location. The funny thing was, is that Barbados was like going to have the swell of its lifetime. And I'm sitting up in this northeastern corner with snowboard pants and jacket on, freezing my butt off trying to find a surfable wave. And like at any point we could have bought a ticket and gone tropical and scored soup bowls. But I'm like, head down, just keep keep to the goal, keep to the goal, yeah. you know, stay on the coast. So we drove, we ended up driving in five days, we drove 1,500 miles. One of them was like an eight-hour jaunt down. And... Uh, surfed a beach break that in the afternoon when the swell was rising, I didn't make it out. It was one of the most humbling, funny experiences I've ever had. Wow. Like I literally tried for an hour and a half with five different times getting blown back to the beach. And I'd never surfed such a short period, stormy surf. Because what happens there, it honks on shore and then it goes offshore. And that's when you get the best part of that storm, right? When it flips offshore and we're out there. Pal, I'm a little five nine was just so humbled. Was Greg filming the yeah, whole thing? Yeah, he's filming the oh whole thing. Oh my gosh. And, and I was with another local surfer and he didn't make it out either. And But he was like casually walking up. I was like head down, like kind of pissed. Like, are you freaking kidding me right now? Because it was just that trip. Yeah. It was, we were just beating our heads into the road all day long. Finally, the waves get good and I'm like, I'm not even making it out. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, no, this happens a lot. That's amazing. Ma, are you serious? He's like, yeah, more often than not, the the first day of the swell, it's really hard to get out. He's like, but tomorrow. I'm like, dude, I'm pissed about today. That's amazing. So we woke up the next morning. It was really fun kind of running barrels. And uh, it ended up being the, the cherry on top of that entire mission. But it was a very, very good trip for me in perspective of, what you have to work for and the rewards that you get on that coast it's just not easy and part of it is is failing a big part of it and that's what these guys do every swell i'm like this is gnarly man they have to work a lot harder than we do in southern california yeah or or even you know flying to pinpoint swells you're like okay at two o'clock the biggest wave of the day is going to come in in tahiti right okay cool you can't do that on the east coast What's Greg going to do with all that footage? Body Globe's coming out with their new campaign with their uh, winter wetsuits. Okay. So it, we went on that trip three or four months ago, and I actually love this. I love holding on to stuff now. It's like a new thing where people are like, oh, yeah. You know, it's not that instant gratification. Yeah. Um, so they're going to come out with it soon when they come out their line of wetsuit. Okay. And, uh, Rad. Yeah. It, it's very – that was a good one. Final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last board that you rode? Mm. Okay, so Channel Islands has made a board called the Rocket Wide. They took um, the original Rocket 9 and just chopped the, the tail off. So now instead of having the tail that's pulled in where you're getting that crazy drive off of, it's more of this skatier feel. And I brought it over to Tavarua knowing that, you know, there's really fun waves over there. And the days went smaller. 
I ended up using that board at like eight foot cloud break. I, it was my go-to board until I really needed a step up for every session. I wrote it pretty much every day. Hmm. And in small waves, it excels. Like It's a groveler. It's not though. It had, <laughs> It's funny because I'm so light. I can't ride grovelers. Like I've always had a lot of difficulty, especially with hips and boards. Okay. Because it's just too much foam under my front foot. So this... This board, it like it has this crazy acceleration off the bottom. Like all you have to do is step on the tail. You don't even have to lean into your bottom turn, and the thing starts flying. So it's fun because you actually have this moment to set your upper body up into the lip, and and the speed of that board is what makes me feel like it's not as much of a groveler because you, you can hit the lip and you come out of it with the same drive that you came into it. And I and I went into like pretty good strong cloud break and it did the same thing interesting it never lost that speed off of the bottom where i think you know with a groveler you're gonna start really tiptoeing the board yeah i was like pretty much getting spit out of barrels going this is the best all-around board i've had in years and what size were you riding it's a five five and the board is marketed as a groveler yeah but i just i just am that guy that likes to surf every condition so I just started using that board. I'm like, well, what is this thing like in barrels? And it was insane. Hmm. So I, I emailed Challenge like, hey, best shortboard you've made in years. Wow. Like in, incredible. So that's coming out soon, and I hope you guys all get into it. It's with their new spine tech technology, and I'd never had one of those. And the, with how light that board is in the spring, it was, it's just fun. I haven't had too many gnarly like technical uh, production boards. And these things, are, you know, they're still all hand-shaped, and but they have that technology side to it. Is the spine tech routed out foam and then carbon yep. Yep. fiber in the middle? Exactly. Is there a stringer still, or is no. it no stringer? No, that's its flex point. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, radical. What? So that's 5.5. Five. What size shortboard do you normally ride? I typically ride a 5.9. Okay. So if you look shorter. at the board, it, it, it is that condensed-looking kind of rounder yeah. outline surfboard. Okay but has become my go-to. And somebody the other day is like, wow, you're going to ride that right now? And I'm like, you know what this board does for me? It takes all of my ego out of my session. Like I know when I get on this board that I'm going to immediately have fun Hmm. when I stand up on it. And I'm not going to like go like, I'm going to rip the bag off of this thing. Right. The board is capable of it, but it just has that feel when you stand up on it, you kind of want to start smiling. You want to get like Rob Machado. I, I cannot surf like him. It's crazy, man. I've been trying for so long, going pause and stop on those friggin' VHSs back in the day. How long have I been gone? How long have I been traveling? How tired have I been? How far have I got in circling? Thank you very kindly, Alex Gray, for taking so much time and also opening up, being so candid in this conversation. Hugely appreciate it. I have links to all the articles, imagery, videos, everything that Alex and I discussed in this episode is all available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. That's also where you can donate any amount 
and that'll enter you to win um, the Elias surfboard by Morningwood Surfboards that I discussed at the beginning of the show. Thank you for the support always. Also, just as an addendum to my opening, the Caring Group, the company that owns Volcom, announced on April 9th that they intend to sell Volcom in an effort to refocus their identity as a luxury goods brand. They'll also be shedding their controlling stake in Puma and Stella McCartney. They'll still maintain ownership of Gucci, St. Laurent, Balenciaga, among others. No word yet on their plans for Outer Known. So stay tuned. We'll try to keep you informed of all that stuff. And if you like this show, definitely please make sure to check out my other work. I co-host a news-related show with Scott Bass. It's called Spit. I do a rumor and kind of gossip show, the TMZ, let's say, of surf podcasts. It's called The Grit with Chaz Smith from BeachGrit.com. So check that stuff out. New shows to come. Surfboard shaper Donnie Brink is launching a show this week. It's called Swell With My Soul. He interviews Dane Godowskis about that famous cloud break swell as well that Alex and I talked about. So download all those shows available in your iTunes app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All a part of this Surf Splendor Network, which you are responsible for its existence. So thank you for this support. Please continue to share it with friends. That's how this show continues to grow. The more listeners we have, the greater chance we have of influencing A-list guests like Alex Gray to participate and share their stories here. So thanks for doing that. SurfSplendorPodcast.com is where you can find everything. And on social media, of course, at SurfSplendor. Until next week, this is David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on. And the seagull falls back on. See you.